The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Uh, let's get into your headlines this Monday morning. President Trump acquitted. The former president cleared of inciting the deadly Capitol Hill mob attack, leaving the Republican Party and the Trump brand at a crossroads. President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office. Didn't get away with anything yet. Super Mario makes progress. Mario Draghi is sworn in as Italy's new prime minister and unveils his new cabinet tasked with saving the country's economy. Uh, we will talk some more about that through the rest of the morning. Oil extends its rally with WTI and Brent crude both at 13-month highs. Optimism over U.S. stimulus, a potential easing of lockdowns and rising tensions in the Middle East, all helping to prop up prices. Plus, the Nikkei breaking 30,000, hitting levels not seen since August 1990 on the back of a better-than-expected fourth-quarter GDP print. The UK hits its vaccination target, delivering at least one shot to 15 million of the nation's most at-risk residents. We've still got a long way to go, and there will undoubtedly be bumps in the road. But after all we've achieved, I know we can go forward with great Happy Monday morning to all of you. This is not going to come as a surprise to anyone, but the former president, Mr. Trump, has been acquitted by the Senate in his second impeachment trial. Now, 57 senators voted to convict Trump of inciting the deadly riots on January the 6th. But as you know by now, falling short of the 67 needed for a super majority. 43 voted to acquit all of them Republicans. Now, seven GOP members did break party ranks. Some of these you knew were going to do it as well. One or two surprise names, but voting to convict the former president of these, only Mitt Romney voted against Trump in the first impeachment vote in February last year. The vote shows a clear rift, though, forming in the Republican Party as GOP lawmakers make their positions clear. Our constitution and our country is more important than any one person. I voted to convict President Trump because he is guilty. I said, Mr. President, uh, this MAGA movement needs to continue. Uh, we need to unite the party. Trump plus is the way back in 2022. Meanwhile, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell maintains he still believes Mr. Trump is culpable despite voting to acquit. President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office. As an ordinary citizen unless the statute of limitations is run, still liable for everything he did while he's in office. Didn't get away with anything yet. Yet. Uh, well, President Biden has said the impeachment trial is a reminder that democracy is fragile. In a written statement, Biden said he agreed with Mitch McConnell that his predecessor was guilty of a, quote, disgraceful dereliction of duty. 
and is practically and morally responsible for provoking the violence unleashed on the capital. Well, let's get a great guest on this now. Joshua Kastenberg joins us, Associate Professor of Law at the University of New Mexico. God knows what time is New Mexico, sir. So thank you very much indeed for joining us today. We do appreciate it as well. Just tell us what the point of this whole process was. The Democrats knew that chances of a conviction were very low. Uh, but what was the point of this whole process, sir? Well, from the Democratic Party perspective, as well as the seven Republicans that voted to convict, the point of the process was to maintain the integrity of the United States government and to act in a constitutional manner. You know, for the Republicans who voted for acquit, some of them voted to acquit because they believed that it would be unconstitutional to have a trial, and some of them voted to acquit for purely political reasons. And so I, I think you can break them down into three categories. Um, but, but mostly the purpose of this impeachment trial was to preserve a historic record of, of misconduct and of misdeeds by the outgoing president of the United States, Donald Trump. So in terms of where the parties go next, I think it's fair to say the Democrats just want to get on with the uh, Biden agenda and start getting some uh, some of the promises into law as well. But for the Republicans as well, I'm already seeing extraordinary comments such as what Lindsey Graham say, well, the Burr impeachment vote guarantees uh, Laura Trump uh, a Senate uh, run, potentially, uh, you know, not so distant future as well. So the Republican Party, is it at war with itself now? Well, it's certainly at a, a major disagreement with itself. And, you know, here you have Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who is probably the ultimate Trump loyalist. And I think what he's hoping to do is to shape Donald Trump into Richard Nixon in 1966. You know, Nixon loses the presidency in 1960. In 1964, he loses the governor's race of California. He tells the media you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around ever again, thereby implying he's quit. But in 1966, Richard Nixon hits the road and campaigns for over 90 Republican candidates for the House of Representatives. And he's instrumental in getting the Republican Party back towards uh, a number where they can contest Lyndon Johnson's policies. But that also puts Richard Nixon in the front seat to earn the Republican nomination in 1968. We know he became president. And I think that's what uh, Senator Graham and the other Trump loyalists are trying to get on to Trump. They believe they need him to rebuild a majority. The senators like Ben Sass and um, Pat Toomey and frankly, you know, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, believe that Trump is best left in the dustbin of history to get the Republican back to its principles of limited government. Joshua, one of the arguments for holding this impeachment trial, even though Trump has now left office, was to send the message that you are accountable for the presidency the whole way through your, your tenure. And uh, right to the end, even if that's January in the final days of an administration, you call it a January exemption. So it hasn't played out the, the way Democrats and some of the Republicans had hoped. But what comes next in the courts? Because there is talk of civil and criminal proceedings potentially. What messaging could that send if it, it continues from here? Well, so, you know, Donald Trump is facing potential criminal um, li liability in, in Georgia with the, um, the phone call to uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger. He's facing potential tax fraud liability uh, of a criminal nature and of a civil nature, both in Manhattan, New York, with the district attorney and with the New York attorney general. We don't know what the attorney general of Washington, D.C., 
um, which operates very much like a state, even though it's not a state, um, is, is pursuing in regard to the insurrection of January the 6th on Donald Trump or some of his key supporters like Roger Stone or Michael Flynn. What I would say this bodes for the future is the Senate trial didn't have a specified standard of proof. It, the, the Constitution doesn't mandate beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest standard of proof in United States criminal law. If Donald Trump is convicted in a federal or state criminal trial beyond a reasonable doubt, I think that would prove enormously embarrassing to those Republican senators who voted to acquit him in the Senate trial by arguing that, you know, the evidence didn't didn't rise to the uh, level of guilt. And let's talk about the seven that did vote to impeach. And it was quite curious if you break down the numbers, one out of the seven effectively uh, has her career on the line. The other six are either retiring or not standing for the Senate back uh, in the, the, the coming year or so. So what does that mean in terms of the Alaska Republican who put herself out there in terms of supporting these proceedings? What sort of backlash or what sort of response are we likely to see in Alaska? Well, you know, S Senator Lisa Murkowski... Um, is what you what I would call a, a, a political lawyer. And this isn't the first time she's faced controversy. See, uh, she actually won her last Senate seat in a write-in election when her own party rebelled against her. She's enormously popular with the center of Alaska politics. And I don't think that her vote to convict Donald Trump will affect her popularity with the center of Alaska. I think the key is will the Democrats put up a strong candidate? And will the Republicans um, seek to actually contest her? Will they believe that having her stay in her seat uh, is, is important for the state of Alaska? Um, that, that's, that's really her future, but my sense is her future is she gets reelected. Professor, just, just to take you back to, to the claim itself, um, as I look through your notes here, you, you make the point that um, that this was a uh, what was it a, a a crime of a continuous nature here, and that many of your students had contacted you to point yeah. out the nature of the offence and the likely culpability. In your opinion, uh, was President Trump culpable? Y yes, he was, and I I think uh, I can be heavily critical on President Trump's attorneys, but when they claimed that you can't. Essentially, they claim you cannot be guilty of inciting a riot or inciting an insurrection or sedition unless you're part of the crime at the very beginning. And there's a fundamental principle both in you know, United States and United Kingdom um, criminal law that there are certain crimes that are of a continuous nature. You know, conspiracy is one of those. And if a person jumps into a crime in the middle of a conspiracy or aids and abets a crime while it's ongoing, they can be found guilty of the crime itself. And so after that argument was, was made, I had a number of my first year law students, not just from this year, but prior years, email at me and text me and ask me, um, is it ethical to make that argument or is that argument correct? And I would have to answer, well, first of all, their argument is completely incorrect. Um, as, as for the ethics of making that argument, um, I'm a prior judge and I would rapidly shut down a counsel that made that argument to a jury. But but remember, a Senate trial is not a formal trial in the traditional Anglo-American sense. And so, you know, you want attorneys to argue accurately in all cases. They just didn't do so in this case. 
And, and extraordinary to see uh, Mitch McConnell uh, with the verbal gymnastics to try and extricate himself from a clearly hypocritical position. It, it, are there any consequences for uh, the uh, minority leader on the basis that he voted to acquit and then subsequently said he thought he was guilty? Well, you know, that remains to be seen. Normally, when a majority party loses power in the Senate, the prior Senate majority leader will step down and the party that's now in the minority will hold an election internally to, you know, elect a new party leader, a new minority party leader. So that was probably going to happen anyway. However, I think there are a number of stalwart Republicans and frankly, I think there are a number of Democrats who would rather see um, Kentucky's Republican Senator Mitch McConnell remain as minority leader than have um, someone else who is a firebrand rising through the ranks. And so it remains to be seen um, whether there's a consequence or not to his actions. I mean, certainly, by, certainly President Biden would rather work with Mitch McConnell than, than some of the younger senators who from day one have you know, worked to undermine his his administration. Um, but look, Mitch McConnell's been a long-serving senator. The election that he won just a few months ago is probably the last time he'll run for the United States Senate. So I don't really foresee a consequence to him. We're going to leave it there. I, I've, I've since found out you're not in New Mexico, you're in DC. So that makes it quarter past one in the morning, which is way too <laughs> early, does. sir, or way too late. One of the two. Thanks for joining us. We do appreciate it, Joshua. Joshua Kastenberg, Associate Professor of Law at the University of New Mexico. Well, let's move on to the US markets, which, uh, well, I can tell you what they did last week. It was a solid but unspectacular performance of the upside. Mind you, if you get these every week, you'd be happy if you were along the market. Um, the Dow was up 1% last week, as indeed was the S&P, 1.7% higher for the Nasdaq. The Russell 2K once again outperforming, putting on 2.5%. Here you can see the Friday moves, the Dow pretty much trading around the flat line, gains of a half of 1% for the Nasdaq and the S&P. Dollar crosses look like this as well. Very interesting to see sterling. Look at that one, Jeffrey. 139 now, give or take the change. So the, the, very interesting. A lot of people told us immediately after Brexit, you get a surge up to 140 if you get a deal. Well, it didn't happen, but it's happening slowly, isn't it? From 133 all the way up now to 139. So that's very interesting. Maybe that is also an indictment of the vaccination program. Very, very strong vaccination program. Look, whatever we might say about this British government as well, I and mean, one can criticise them for a lot of things as well, they have absolutely nailed their first dose vaccination target as well. And maybe there are hopes that the British economy can get back on track quite quickly. Yeah, I, and I think it raises some very interesting questions uh, about companies on the FTSE now that have costs in dollars or income in dollars and costs in other currencies. And it's one of those trades that we saw in vogue at certain points uh, during um, the post uh, vote on Brexit. It seems like it's coming back in vogue now as uh, we have to take on board the consequences of higher sterling against the dollar. Yeah, uh, big ramifications for those international companies, Jeffrey. We know one or two of them. Uh, let's move on to have a look at the oil price as well. Well, this is extraordinary as well. well one thing very often you see uh, as, as the dollar comes off, you see the price of crude rally. I mean, it's just gone in a one-day direction. I think we're like nine out of ten sessions now to the upside on Brent and WTI. You've got a 61 handle, give or take the change, on WTI. Brent crude uh, earlier on was trading a little bit higher than this earlier on, just knocking on the door of 64 dollars a barrel. Karen. 
Stunning moves uh, that we're seeing in the commodities complex there, Steve. Coming up on the show, from central banker to Italian prime minister, Mario Draghi takes office and unveils his new cabinet. We're going to cross live to Milan for the latest. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. a couple of big corporate stories. The first uh, surrounding yogurt maker Danone. Artisan partners will meet with Danone board members this week. According to multiple reports, as the investment group calls for a management shakeup at the French company. The U.S. firm is the second stakeholder to demand change after activist investor Bluebell urged CEO Emmanuel Faber to step down last month. Artisan Partners claims it holds a stake of over 3% in Danone and has criticised the world's largest yogurt group of underperforming against its peers. Nissan shares closed lower after the Japanese automaker said it was not in talks with Apple over delivering an autonomous car. The Financial Times earlier reported that Apple approached the car maker, but the talks were brief and no longer active. Nissan is the latest car maker to confirm that it is not in talks with the Cupertino giant. Hyundai and Kia did the same at the start of the month. Porsche boss Oliver Blum says the luxury German car maker has no plans to open a factory in China, despite the country being its biggest and most profitable market. Speaking to the Financial Times, Blum said Porsche's status as a premium vehicle meant keeping production in Europe. Germany's other high-end car makers, include Daimler and BMW, have increasingly shifted production to China as the market there has grown. Steve. Thank you very much, Karen. Right, Mario Draghi has been sworn in as Italy's new prime minister. The former ECB chief will lead a unity government, unity in Italian politics. Now, there's a, an interesting message. Oxymoron, some might say. Uh, after winning the backing of almost all the country's political parties, um, Draghi unveiled his new cabinet made up of lawmakers from across the political spectrum, as well as eight technocratic ministers, including uh, the Bank of Italy Director General Daniele Franco as a finance minister. Well, Claudia joins us with more. Claudia, I'm sorry to, I'm not dismissive, I really want it to work, but a national unity government made up of this lot in Italy, that's going to be a hard task. You know, it is going to be a hard task. There's no question there. But certainly Mario Draghi demonstrated uh, very uh, shrewd politics. I mean, he uh, appointed a uh, larger amount of politicians than maybe uh, the market was expecting. Uh, the observers thought that maybe there would be more uh, technocratic uh, positions. Uh, but in the end, he satisfied what is uh, this wide majority that he actually has, and in some senses is giving some responsibility also to these parties. Uh, so the, um, you know, leaving industry with uh, uh, the Lega party and leaving the um, uh, 
foreign ministry to the Cinque Stelle with Luigi Di Maio. So some important decisions that will put politics uh, in the mix, of course, but the most uh, important positions, the key positions that have the most to do with the agenda that we will know more about in the next days uh, from Mario Draghi is in the hands of uh, technical figures that, that will uh, be working very closely with Mario Draghi. He also kept uh, the European uh, relations uh, position for himself. So he did not appoint a minister uh, to manage that position. So it's very clear that he will be the one who will be speaking with Europe. So he intends to work on that aspect quite strongly. So next generation EU is going to be, of course, top of the list. Uh, but over the weekend, some uh, other disturbing uh, news did come out, which is, of course, the issue regarding the pandemic. So uh, starting today, the ski slopes were supposed to open here in Italy. And that has been postponed to the 5th of March. Uh, so, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of reaction from that industry overall, uh, lamenting the fact that this came, you know, just hours before the opening because it was announced yesterday, you know, literally five hours before, you know, the the uh, uh, the end of the 13th, the 14th of February. And, you know, this morning people were supposed to be on the slope. So there is a lot of concern about this industry, a lot of concern once again around the pandemic. Uh, the worry, of course, is that the rollout of the vaccine uh, may not come in time uh, for this sort of third wave with all of these variants that are uh, running around. While yesterday marked the uh, lowest death rate for Italy since the beginning of the year, uh, it, there is also a sign that these number of cases is growing. These variants, as we know, are more infectious, more contagious. And so there is concern that the situation could worsen once again. And this just puts everyone uh, on alert here, of course, as the economy has taken such a hit. We'll remember uh, that GDP in Italy declined the most in the EU, you know, almost nine percentage points in 2020, a difficult start of the year. So Mario Draghi does have his work cut out for him. He will go to a confidence vote in the next days. And everyone is really, at this point, just, uh, you know, very much uh, ready to hear more about his plan. Uh, Claudia, and I think we're all looking for forward guidance from Mario Draghi on exactly what policies he's going to implement here. But, but let's, let's try and um, help our audience out here by taking advantage of, of your experience and background on this story. If you look at the administration he's put together and the challenges that he now has to confront. I, I don't want to curse this administration, but what do you think is the key issue potentially that will bring it to its close? As we think back to Mario Monti's uh, short-lived run, ultimately he was unable to pull together the uh, divided parties. What do you think this time round will be the issue that ultimately unravels this government, if anything? Well, you know, this uh, time, things are very, very different. Uh, the uh, person that is uh, running this technocratic government is very different from any figure in the past. The situation is, any, you know, much different than anything we've ever seen in the past. You know, as we've said time and time again, the crisis at this point, you know, it's a global situation. Uh, it is, uh, you know, a health crisis, uh, you know, rather than just a purely economic crisis. It's brought on economic issues. Uh, you know, what, what it appears that Mario Draghi wants to do is really work hard on, you know, the digital transformation. He wants to really make some big changes that have been a long time coming. So these reforms that need to come into place, the where they need to put the focus, uh, if he can get that through, that will be very positive for Italy. But, you know, as you said, 
the political quote unquote aspects will come into play. And it really is too early to say what they will be, uh, because again, this majority majority is so uh, vast that um, you know it's going to be hard to keep everyone together. You know, they will be as time goes on more pressure uh, for these political parties to either uh, you know take credit for what is going well or to be against what is not going well. So uh, I think that the answer to your question is an answer I could give you a little further down the line, you know, because quickly we will see uh, how these parties behave because they're, they also, you know, remember, find themselves in a situation they've never found themselves in before and also are living through their own sort of personal crises within their own party. So they have to deal, especially, for instance, the Five Star Movement, they have to deal with their own internal issues. So for a while, they'll be working on that. And then as we see what the good things are and what the bad things are that are going forward, then we'll know exactly what is going to make this government fall. All right. Terrific. Thank you so much, Claudia, for that. Um, Let's talk about uh, um, votes elsewhere in uh, the Eurozone. Catalonia's pro-independence parties are set to increase their majority in the local parliament following Sunday's regional elections. The pro-union socialist party took the largest proportion of the votes with around 23%. But Catalonia's secessionist parties are on pace now to win just over half of all the seats. Uh, The far-right Vox Party claimed 11 seats and will enter the uh, Catalonian Parliament for the first time. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.